Father, there are times when Quite frankly, we get a little depressed, and yet we can soar above it all with your presence in our lives. And I do pray, starting with myself, that you would be first, like we sang, in all things. I ask that you would speak through me first and foremost, to build up your body. Encourage us, I pray, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys tired? Because it looks like it. I mean, it just feels subdued in here. And so, I'm running out of jokes, too. So, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read through the chapter. It says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed, began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place for them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in his name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. 
for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When he had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place in the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together, was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. But there was not a needy person among them, For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Amen. I'm going to begin our, or continue by talking about what I call a safety culture of all times for my wife not to feel well and all times just not to work. David, are we good here? There we go. Thank you. David, can you, uh, David, can you stand up for a second? David, can you, David, stop a bit. Can you stand up for a second? Stand up. Come on. I want to show them your shirt just so you can see it. Stand up. Are you standing up? You stand up. Just stand up. You stand up. Sorry. I just wanted to point out the brown shirt he's wearing, so, all right? I'm trying to, yes, and I'm trying to wake you guys up, too, so thank you, David. I have two Davids back there. I mean, like, they're confused, right? David, David, David. That's on me. I apologize. So. I want to talk to you about a safety culture. You can sit back now. I'm going to have a longer introduction. Just kind of listen. And, and kind of quite frankly for a while, put your Bibles down. It's a longer introduction here. In August 2009, we're going to talk about some food. In August 2009, Max Haight, age three, had his first day of spree. spree 
preschool in Charlottesville, Virginia. Some of you may be able to relate to this story, but before he was allowed to take the first step on his 18-year journey to a college degree, his parents, John and Jane, had to attend a mandatory orientation session where the rules and procedures were explained by Max's teacher. I can imagine Shannon smiling right now as I'm going to go through this because she'll understand this. The most important rule, judging by the time spent discussing it, was no nuts. Because of the risk to children with peanut allergies, there was an absolute prohibition on bringing anything containing nuts into the building. Of course, peanuts are legumes, not nuts, but some kids have allergies to tree nuts, too. So along with peanuts and peanut butter, all nut, nuts and nut products were banned. And to be extra safe, the school also banned anything produced in a factory that processes nuts. I personally think that's nuts, but there we go. So that means that many kind of dried fruits and other snacks were prohibited too. As the list of prohibited substances grew, and as the clock ticked on, John, Max's father, asked the assembled group of parents what he thought was a helpful question. Poor John. Does anyone here have a child with any kind of nut allergy? If we know about the kid's actual allergies, I'm sure we'll all do everything we can to avoid risk. But if there's no kid in the class with such an allergy, then maybe we can lighten up a bit instead of banning all those things. Just ban peanuts. Ah, someone wise in this, the voice of reason, right? How do you think that went? The teacher was visibly annoyed by John's question, and she moved rapidly to stop any parent from responding. Listen to what she said. Don't put anyone on the spot. Don't make any parents feel uncomfortable. Regardless of whether anyone in the class is affected, these are the school's rules. You can't blame the school for being so cautious. Now, I researched this a little bit. Did you know that peanut allergies were rare among children up until the mid-1990s? What happened? Well, nobody knew why the American culture, kids were suddenly becoming more allergic to peanuts. But the logical and compassionate response was obvious. It's this. Kids are vulnerable. Protect them from peanuts and peanut products and anything that has been in contact with nuts of any kind. Why not? What's the harm, right? Can you relate to this? Well, it turns out, the harm was severe. It was later discovered that peanut allergies were surging precisely because parents and teachers had started protecting children from exposure to peanuts back in the 1990s. Did you know that? Safety culture in food. What a safety culture in classical literature. All these examples I'm reading, by the way, are true, and it comes from a book that I'll, I'll give you the title of it in a moment here, because I'm not making this stuff up, just so you know. Columbia University's core curriculum, which is part of the general education requirement for all undergraduates at Columbia College, 
features a course called Masterpieces of Western Literature and Philosophy. At one point, this included works by uh, Homer, Dante, you recognize these names, Augustine. According to the university, the course is supposed to tackle the most difficult questions about human experience. However, in 2015, four Columbia undergraduates wrote an essay in the school newspaper arguing that students need to feel safe in the classroom. But many texts in the Western canon are wrought with histories and narratives of exclusion and oppression. <gasps> and they contain triggering and offensive material that marginalizes student identities in the classroom. Now, some students said that these texts are so emotionally challenging to read and discuss that professors should issue what they call trigger warnings and provide support for triggered students. Trigger warnings, so you know, are verbal. I didn't know what they were, so I had to look it up. Some of you are shaking your heads like you understand what I'm saying here. They're verbal or written notifications provided by a professor to alert students that they are about to encounter potentially distressing material. So safety culture in classical literature. But a safety culture in gender confusion. True story, in 2014, Oberlin College, which is in Ohio, posted guidelines for faculty urging them to use trigger warnings, now you know what that is, to show students that you care about their safety. The rest of the memo makes it clear that what the college was really telling its faculty was this. Show students that you care about their feelings, which is demonstrated by using each student's preferred gender pronoun, not because this was respectful or appropriately sensitive, but because a professor who uses an incorrect pronoun prevents or impairs their safety in a classroom. If students have been told that they can request gender-neutral pronouns and then a professor fails to use one, students may be disappointed or upset. You want to have a paddle around, because I would like to use it on a few of these students. How about this? A safety culture, and believe it or not, just to tra traditional definitions. To show how far we have softened, just, just look at how our culture has softened us. Look at how our use of language has changed. Take the word trauma. In the early versions of the primary manual of psychiatry and so on, psychiatrists used the word trauma, only to describe a physical agent causing physical damage, as in the case of what we now call a traumatic brain injury. Right? You've heard that phrase before? Makes sense. However, in the 1980 version, a revision, the manual recognized post-traumatic stress disorder as a mental disorder, the first type of traumatic injury that isn't physical. But to qualify as PTSD, an event would have to evoke significant symptoms of distress in almost everyone and be outside the range of usual human experience. So, for example, war or rape or torture qualified. And you could undergo that. You can suffer from PTSD. Divorce and simple bereavement did not meet that definition because they are normal parts of life. But by the early 2000s, however, the concept of trauma 
expanded to include, now catch this, anything experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful. This subjective standard opened the door for such experiences as bullying, you recognize that now, to be called trauma. The word emotional abuse became popular and widely used as it was also described as trauma. So I guess the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, like it's no longer true anymore. A safety culture with our food, with our literature, with our gender, with definitions, and it goes as far as even addressing opposing ideas. Have you ever heard of a safe place in an academic setting? I have, and I worked there for years. Well, in March 2015, the New York Times published an essay by Judith Shulovitz about a safe place created by students at Brown University. The students were preparing for an upcoming debate between two feminist authors, Wendy McElroy and Jessica Valenti, on rape culture, the concept that prevailing social attitudes have the effect of normalizing or trivializing sexual assault and abuse in America. Of course, born out of this was what? <coughs> the Me Too movement, okay? Wendy McElroy, a rape survivor, debated that America was not a rape culture. And she had evidence and testimony about all this. But some Brown students argued that America is a rape culture and that McElvoy should not be allowed to challenge that belief. She can't even challenge that belief now, apparently. One Brown student explained to Shulovitz, bringing in a speaker like that could serve to invalidate people's experiences and could be damaging. It could be. It could be painful to hear. And some students interpret the emotional pain as a sign that they are in danger. So the students attempted to get McElroy disinvited from the debate. If you remove one party from a debate, then guess what? There's no debate, right? That effort failed, but in response, now listen to this. This is ridiculous, but it's not the most ridiculous part of this, this story. The president of Brown University, Christina Paxson, announced that she disagreed with McElroy and that during the debate, the college would hold a competing talk about rape culture without debate so students could hear about how America is a rape culture without being confronted by different views. Any student who chose to attend the main debate could still be damaged by the presence of McElroy on campus and re-traumatized. So Brown students created a safe place. Now, you ready for this? I am not making this up. I am reading this word for word out of this book called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanoff. You ready? This is what the, the safe place that these students created. It's a safe place where anyone who felt traumatized could recuperate and get help. The room was equipped with cookies, coloring books, bubbles, Play-Doh, calming music, pillows, 
blankets, and a video of frolicking puppies. As well as students and staff members purportedly trained to deal with trauma. So in summary, our culture is trying to protect us from the potential dangers. It's potential dangers associated with food, classical literature, gender confusion, traditional definitions, and opposing ideas. All this came from the recent book, again, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Interestingly enough, the idea for this book began when one of the authors, he suffered from bouts of depression, and so he sought help from a psychiatrist where he employed the technique. Have you ever heard of cognitive behavioral therapy? You know, it's basically replacing bad thoughts with good thoughts in many ways. The Bible calls renewing your mind, okay, putting the Bible in and the truth in and, and getting out all the bad stuff. And CBT rests on the idea that thoughts and perceptions influence behavior. So it focuses on solutions and encouraging patients to challenge this distorted thinking so they can change destructive patterns of behavior. When his work with college students, this author began to notice that the same distorted thinking patterns that the CBT helped him to overcome. And what he noticed was that these distorted thinking patterns were creating extremely fragile students, unprepared for the difficulties of life. And when they wrote just an article about this back in 2015, it soared in popularity. I think it was Atlantic Constitution Journal. It was one of the top five articles. It was so popular that even President Obama at the time quoted from it. And, of course, that article and additional research morphed into the book that I just told you about. And it is a New York Times best-selling book. But what else took place was even more interesting. Because of that article, they received feedback uh, from universities around the country confirming the results that they found. In other words, this phenomenon wasn't just happening in these few universities. It was happening nationwide. College students in this younger generation have what they call the, the sickness of safetyism, an obsession with being safe. So the verdict was in. The next generation is becoming dangerously fragile. Have you seen that in society? Big time. Now, lest you think this just exists on universities, I've shared this before, we all know the feeling of being nervous or uncomfortable in a social situation, right? Maybe you've clammed up, I'm reading directly from WebMD, Maybe you clammed up when meeting someone new or gotten sweaty palms before making a big presentation. Public speaking or walking into a room full of strangers isn't exactly thrilling for everybody, but most people can get through it. But if you have social anxiety disorder, though the stress of these situations is too much to handle, you might avoid all social contact because these things that other people consider normal, like making small talk and eye contact, they make you feel so uncomfortable. So all aspects of your life, not just the social, could start to fall apart. To help students with this condition, Auburn Riverside High School allows students that suffer from social anxiety disorder, remember this, 
They come to school in their pajamas with their blankets and their pillows and they're excused from all the large group settings, meetings and so on. I think they have special places in the library to lay down and sleep or to stretch out and so on. Somebody mentioned something like that. Anyways, that's now on the high school level. So it's not just a university level, it's on a high school level, okay? Now they have a, a, we all know what a service dog is, right? If you're blind, you need a service dog. What if you are a little anxious? Do you get a service dog? Yes, you do. And you can, they're at Auburn Riverside High School. To help the student get through the day, I guess. Now, in my day and in your day, what do we call social anxiety disorder? Shyness. <laughs> You're simply shy. We never thought that you needed help or therapy. I mean, it's just who you are, and you just kind of learn to make eye, t- eye contact and small talk. If you didn't like the public speaking, guess what? Don't be a teacher. Go work in a lab somewhere where you can be alone and use your gifts. Now, these stories, it's a long introduction here, they are so ridiculous that they're hard to believe. Now, surely, the older generation, us, we, Christians, we have not been formed by our culture to be so fragile. Have we? Let's talk about a Christian safety culture. I'm going to read to you from a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Timothy Keller. An excellent book, by the way, if you want to learn about suffering and how to walk with God in and through it. He writes this. Says, On our wedding day, Kathy and I spoke our vows to each other in front of our friends and families. To the traditional words of commitment, we added a passage of scripture, Psalm 34, 1-3, which is engraved on the inside of our wedding rings. And this is, just listen to this, this is the verse. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Saying our vows was a heady moment. And the lofty words of the text enhanced it. We were embarking on a lifetime of Christian ministry together and we anticipated boldly presenting the God we knew to the world. At the same time, however, we almost completely ignored the words at the center of that passage. The text definition of ministry success is that the afflicted hear and be glad. One of the reasons that phrase was so lost on us was because, as Kathy said later, at that age, neither of us had suffered so much as an ingrown toenail. We were young, and the hubris of youth does not imagine pain and suffering. Now, despite the abundant teaching of suffering in the Bible, Timothy Keller and his wife had to admit that their view on suffering was more formed by the contemporary secular Western culture than the Bible. He goes on to write that, finally, as I grew my understanding of the Bible itself, I came to see that the reality of suffering was one of its main themes. Is that what you see see when you read the Bible, one of the main themes is suffering? My guess is not. Listen to this. The book of Genesis begins with an account of how evil and death came into the world. The book of Exodus recounts Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, 
a time of intense testing and trial. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament is largely dedicated to the problem of suffering. The book of Psalms provides a prayer for every possible situation in life. And so it is striking how filled it is with cries of pain and with blunt questions to God about the seeming randomness and injustice of suffering. In Psalm 44, the writer looks at the devastation of his country and says, Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? The books of Job and Ecclesiastes are almost wholly dedicated to deep reflection on unjust suffering and on the frustrating pointlessness that characterizes so much life. The prophets Jeremiah and Habakkuk give searing expression to the human complaint that evil seems to rule history. New Testament books such as Hebrews and 1 Peter are almost entirely devoted to helping people face relentless sorrows and troubles. And of course, tiring over all, the central figure of the whole of Scripture, Jesus Christ, is a man of sorrows. The Bible, therefore, is about suffering as much as it is about anything. Now, nothing is more important than to learn how to maintain a life of purpose in the midst of painful adversity. And one of the main ways a culture serves its members is by helping them face terrible evil and adversity. Now, social theorist Max Schurter wrote this. I want you to listen because this applies to all of us. It says, An essential part of the teachings and directives of the great religious and philosophical thinkers the world over has been on the meaning of pain and suffering. And Schiller goes on to argue that every society has chosen some version of these teachings so as to give its members instructions to encounter suffering correctly. In other words, you learn how to suffer properly. But sociologists and anthropologists have analyzed and compared the various ways that cultures train its members for grief, for pain, and for loss. And when this comparison is done, it is almost always noted that our own contemporary secular Western culture is one of the weakest and worst in history at doing so. You write to that, Shannon, we talked about this morning? You are woefully, we are woefully prepared to endure suffering. This we can relate to. Remember the suffering in Peter? This is what he says to them. Beloved, and I love you, he's saying, but don't be surprised at this fiery trial. It's suffering when it comes upon you to test you. How are they receiving it? They were receiving it as though something strange was happening to them. Is it any wonder that our culture is one of the worst in all of history at preparing us to suffer? And with what I just read to you in that long introduction, folks, our generation and our, our, our culture right now, we are soft and fragile. The older generations, they were tougher. We need to be toughened up. I mean, think about it. All that's left, you've heard me say, for all that is left in our society, for our kids, 
His parents aren't disciplining them, so they go to school, and they're not going to fail. You have to almost stop coming to fail. Did you know that? In athletics, are there winners and losers anymore? Well, yes, there are, but for the most part, as they grow up, everyone gets a trophy. That's not life. Life isn't fair. So when we read, we talk about a spirit-filled culture, the fourth chapter of Acts, we, we read a story that reads like fiction, doesn't it? Can we relate to that? Can you relate to being persecuted for healing a man and you spend a night in jail? You're brought up before a court, you're accused. Did the early church really respond that way to persecution and suffering? Quite frankly, it's unbelievable and unrelatable to us in our culture. How is that kind of response that we just read in Acts chapter 4 even possible? Isn't that how we think? Because just another way we think is this. I could never endure that. Right? Well, this is what we read. How did they... How is that kind of response even possible? Well, number one, they had been with Jesus. The text makes that clear. It's what I have, for lack of a better term, hammered into you these three years. Be with him. Be with Jesus. They were bold in their witnessing. It was, it was defiant witnessing in a sense, wasn't it? And you know why? The text is clear. Because of the Holy Spirit. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did exactly what Jesus said he would do. You shall be my witnesses. Power shall come upon you to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They prioritized prayer. After they were set free, they immediately went into a prayer meeting. God kept his promise. There's another way they got through it. What do you mean by that, Pastor Chris? Well, turn in your Bibles. Well, just listen. Luke chapter 12, 11 to 12. You can put that down. Luke 12, 11 to 12. This is what Jesus said. He'd been preparing them. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 4. Or John fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And God kept his promise. If you're going to be a, a witness for me, this is what will happen. And, of course, that is, it's kind of funny they have to sit there and bring this point out, but that is normal Christianity. It reads as something that is way out there to us, but that is normal Christianity. John sixteen thirty three, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He's telling us that, folks. It's going to be difficult. You're going to suffer. But don't forget the last part. Take courage. I have overcome the world. That is normal Christianity. 
Well, in the next three chapters of Acts, you will see three waves of opposition unfold. In this chapter, it is opposition from the outside. In the next chapter, it will be hypocrisy from within the community of faith. In chapter 6, opposition will come in the form of division within the church. Satan is on the attack, attempting to destroy the kingdom of God. God is, and I want you to hear me on this, he is spoon-feeding the infant church opposition, conflict. Well, why? To strengthen their tolerance to pain for the more intense suffering that would come in chapter 7, which is, of course, the death of Stephen. And then they would all be persecuted and scattered because they're fulfilling, again, God's promise to them. You witness first in Jerusalem, then where? The Gospels that go to Judea and Samaria, and then from there to the uttermost parts of the world. Let me go back to now to, to, to close up here this morning. In February 2015, a study was published, we're going to go back to nuts, peanuts and everything, by a group called Learning Early About Peanut Allergy. And it was based on the hypothesis that regular eating of peanut-containing products when started during infancy, will elicit a protective immune response instead of an allergic immune reaction. The researchers recruited the parents of 640 infants from the ages of 4 to 11 months old who were at high risk of developing a peanut allergy because they had severe eczema or a tested positive for another allergy. You follow me so far? The researchers told half the parents to follow the standard advice for high-risk kids, which was to avoid all exposure to peanuts and peanut products. The other half were given a supply of snacks made from peanut butter and puffed corn, were told to give some to their child at least three times a week. The researchers followed all the families carefully, and when the children turned five years old, they were tested for an allergic reaction to peanuts. And the results were stunning. Among the children who had been protected from peanuts, 17% had developed a peanut allergy. In the group that had been deliberately exposed to peanut products, only 3% had developed an allergy. You see, the immune system, as we know, is a complex adaptive system that requires exposure to a range of foods, bacteria and even parasitic worms in order to develop its ability to mount an immune response to real threats. Vaccinations use the same logic, right? Childhood vaccines make us healthier, not by reducing threats in the world, like banning germs in schools, but by exposing children to those threats in small doses, thereby giving the child's immune system the opportunity to learn how to fend off similar threats in the future. Our culture is teaching kids that failures, insults, and painful experiences will do lasting damage. Do you see that? If you don't, just open your eyes. That's the culture that we live in. This is the thinking behind the participation trophy ideas. Whether you win or lose, everyone gets a trophy. The truth is that our safety culture is harmful in and of itself. 
Human beings need physical and mental challenges and stressors or we deteriorate. If you lie in a bed, you're sick, you lie in a bed and don't move, what happens to your muscles? Atrophy. I'm close to this story. In 1964, Helen Rosevere, ever heard of her? I had not. I found this story in a commentary that I'm using to help me with the sermon series. Helen Rosevere was a medical missionary in what had been then was the Belgian Congo. In June of that year, in what amounted to a rebel uprising, guerrillas came to the village where she was working, capturing her. Her story is horrendous, including being tied to a post and raped for three days. Now, while tied to the post, and when she was being abused, she heard a voice. It wasn't an audible voice, but she says it was just God speaking to her through her recollection of what Scripture demanded of a Christian in that kind of situation. And I want you all to listen to me very carefully, because I began this sermon with the world view on suffering. And I'm ending this sermon with a completely different view. I want you to remember the contrast, which is why I chose this shocking story. Hopefully you remember it. Again, she says it was just God speaking to her through her recollection of what Scripture demanded of a Christian in that kind of situation. This is what she heard. Can you thank me for this, even if I don't tell you why? Can you thank me for this, even if I don't tell you why? And she said in her biography, Give Me This Mountain, that she responded aloud while she's being abused. Yes, if this fulfills your purpose. Could you find any more of a different contrast from Helen Rosevere to the millions of college students in our culture today? And so I struggled with an application point, and I just, this verse kept coming back to me, and I want you guys to memorize it. First Peter 412. It's right here. There we go. Memorize that. Let's pray. Lord, perhaps it was just a little bit of a laid back or subdued time because we're talking about something that is as serious as suffering and as a reality in this world. Life is not fair. And I'm concerned for this future generation for being too fragile. Lord, may you count us worthy. Would you use us as you used the early church? To boldly proclaim the gospel. And if we have to suffer, so be it. Because the reality is, is that our suffering, our persecution in America today really comes from what we think other people think about us. So, Lord, would you use us? Would you perfect us? Would you test us? May we learn to trust you as we walk through suffering with you. 
And as we see the early church and how they endured suffering and yet continued to boldly preach the gospel, Lord, make us like them. Form Jesus Christ's character within us. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to dismiss this for this morning, so we won't go with the song. I think it's appropriate.